Welcome to Christ's Church Cathedral, Hamilton, on this Wednesday, March the 3rd. We are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Today, we honor John and Charles Wesley, who launched the Methodist revival in the 18th century Church of England. Brought up in a strict Anglican parsonage, the two brothers both became priests with a demanding sense of purpose. In the year 1738, they each experienced conversion of the heart and went forth to help others know the same assurance of God's love. In one of their later writings, they describe themselves as messengers of God to those who are Christians in name, but heathens in heart, to call them back to real, genuine Christianity. Wherever they went, their mission drew immense crowds, who often responded with uncontrollable fervor. But the Wesleys did more than preach to the crowds. They also developed a network of support groups in order to sustain the revival. Hymn singing became a prominent feature of these Methodist meetings because the Wesleys understood the power of good hymns to teach sound doctrine and heartfelt religion. Charles alone wrote nearly 6,000, and a good many are still cherished by all English-speaking Christians. For instance, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Christ, whose glory fills the skies, and love divine all loves excel. In time, much to the grief of the Wesley brothers, a large section of the Methodist movement separated from the Church of England and organized its own family of churches. But the brothers' work also endured in Anglicanism itself and gave it a new vitality, so that our whole tradition is in debt to their evangelical witness.
ministry of music, of which we are all partakers. Please respond with the bold-faced print. Creator God, because you make all that draws forth our praise and the forms in which to express it, we, we praise you. Because you make artists of us all, awakening courage to look again at what is taken for granted, grace to share these insights with others, vision to reveal the future already in being, we, we praise you. Because you form your word among us, and in your great work embrace all human experience, even death itself, inspiring our resurrection song. We praise you. Yours is the glory. Amen. So, time for our hymn festival to begin. Christ whose glory fills the skies. This hymn, like so many of Wesley's hymns, contains several scripture allusions. The idea of the glory of the Lord filling the skies, especially at morning, can be seen in passages such as Exodus 16:7, in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, or 2 Samuel 23, verse 4, he dawns on them like the morning light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, John 8, 12 and 9, 5, and John called him the true light, which gives light to everyone, as read in John 1, verse 9. Wesley used the name Son of Righteousness, which is from Malachi 4, verse 2. He used this name frequently in his hymns, including Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Similarly, Day Star in My Heart Appear is almost a direct quote from 2 Peter 1, verse 19. In the second verse, Wesley shifted his approach. As Carl Daw has noted, Wesley does not continue with this intense level of scriptural illusion but moves ahead to emphasize the desirable by considering its opposite. The second stanza speaks of how the return of natural daylight in the morning is still dark, cheerless, and joyless, if it is without the mercy of Christ. The third stanza is a prayer, asking for Christ to pierce the heart and be displayed in the life of the worshiper. The tune, known as Ratisbon, has a long history, tracing back to a German folk hymn from the early 15th century, leading to Martin Luther adapting the hymn for his Reformation efforts. The connection between Ratisbon and Christ whose glory filled the skies happened in the first edition of Hymns Ancient and Modern. In spite of the frequent pairing of these two items, which Paul Westermeyer called an apt tune for Wesley's text. This tune is not universally loved as a proper setting for Wesley's hymn. Australian scholar Wesley Milgate was particularly unimpressed, saying the tune, having got off to a drab start, maintains its dullness with consistency. Sing it, if you must, with some attempt at cheerfulness. Similarly, Methodist scholar Carlton Young called it an exceedingly dull, gray tune that seldom complements Wesley's dynamic, exciting, and contrasting metaphors. Well, 
Let us have a sing of this hymn and see how you respond to it. and adoration 
runs throughout the text. But the final stanza is clearly a prayer for sanctification for consistently holy lives. Wesley so fervently believed that it was possible to live without sinning in fact that he had himself so lived. His rules for holy living formed the underlying discipline of his daily life. Thus, the last stanza was an outcome of this Wesleyan doctrine of perfection. While this doctrine was one of the hardest things his friends had to bear, it is our fervent Christian prayer that our sanctification will ultimately lead to glorification. As is customary in a Charles Wesley text, biblical illusions abound. We might well be astonished as to the number of scriptural references attached to this hymn. Then as now, every word of scripture, if correctly interpreted, is thought to be true. Nothing could give a hymn text more theological and missional sturdiness than to fill it with scriptural language. Throughout this prolific period of hymn writing of the 18th century, therefore, scriptural language and allusion about.
songs to sing. This hymn was written on May 21st, 1739, the anniversary of Charles' conversion. The opening line is thought to have been inspired by a chance remark of Peter Böhler, a Moravian leader who was the chief instrument in the awakening of the Wesleys. Had I but a thousand tongues, I would praise God with all of them. By this point, Charles had yet to learn a few things about hymn writing. Firstly, six stanzas are about the limit for a singing congregation, not the 19 he originally penned. And second, the subject matter should be of a general rather than a private nature. In its original form, the hymn was primarily about Charles' personal experience in conversion, and so editors of hymn books have usually rejected 13 of the 19 verses. Importantly, though, while Charles had known intellectually the theology around redemption, his experience of May 21st found the spotlight moving from the cross onto his own soul. He was singled out by redeeming love as one particular individual for whom the Savior had died. That realization brought with it a flood of emotion which energized his will and made him ever afterward a brilliant ambassador of Christ to other people. This experience became the essence of the Methodist spiritual life. The sacraments were useful, but this sustaining power was the vital contact. The opening stanzas are the seventh and eighth in the original poem, the ones more suited to common use. In stanza three, we move to definite themes, namely, the power of Jesus' name to change the emotional framework of life. In the next verse, we see the effect of Wesley's prison ministry. Prisoners in the 18th century had their shackles riveted on, and so when released, the jailers would knock them off. In like manner, Christ knocks off the irons as the prisoners are released. On this theme of Wesley's prison experience, the remaining six stanzas of the original enumerate the classes of sinners cleansed by the sacrifice of Christ. Harlots, publicans, thieves, murderers, and people consumed by lust or pride. This catalog is a reflection of Charles' evangelical work among the rascals of Newgate Prison.
lo, he comes, clouds descending, is one of the must-have hymns with which to begin the season of Advent. This hymn is a stirring text which stands as a marvelous celebration of the second Advent. This term is used to describe the time when Christ comes to receive into glory all his saints and to rule the universe forever. Terribly apocalyptic stuff, this, as can be reasonably expected for the start of the Advent season. In 1750, John Senek, a friend of John and Charles Wesley, wrote an Advent hymn that began, Lo, he cometh, countless trumpets blow before his bloody sign. Wesley decided to use this first line, but completely recast the rest of this crude Senek hymn text. Politely, he waited six years after Senek's death to do so. Wesley then published his version in Hymns of Intercession for All Mankind, 1758, with the title, Thy Kingdom Come, changed to the Second Advent in other editions. Though later hymnals occasionally mixed Cynic's lines with Wesley's, most modern hymnals will include most of Wesley's original text. Again, like so many of Wesley's texts, Lo, He Comes, abounds in biblical imagery. The ideas and language are borrowed from the apocalyptic readings found in Revelation. The whole hymn is largely based around Revelation 1, verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so. Amen. Stanzas 1, 2, and 4 are based on the rich language of John's apocalyptic visions recorded in Revelation 1, 7, and 5, 11 to 13. The third stanza reminds us that Christ's wounds and atoning death should lead us to greater faith and ultimately to our worship of Christ in glory, as Christ himself reminded the doubting Thomas. Stanza 4 is a majestic doxology to Christ, our Savior and Lord. Organists enjoy playing an embellished version when it comes to the last verse of a hymn. These reharms, as they are called in the business, can be breathtaking. Only you in the congregation have to keep singing. The harmonic and occasionally rhythmic flights of fancy are designed to heighten the fervor of the last verse and bring the hymn to a majestic conclusion. Such is the case here with this brilliant reharm by Martin Howe. Martin Howe spent most of his career as a church musician and organist working at the Royal School of Church Music in the UK, and among other things, developed the chorister training scheme through which many thousands have been introduced to a lifetime appreciation of and participation in church choral music. Howe's arrangement here is exhilarating both for the congregation as well as the organist.
Come thou long-expected Jesus. One of Charles Wesley's most endearing Christmas hymns, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, was first published in hymns for the Nativity of Our Lord in 1745. The first edition was printed on 17 December 1745 in time to be distributed for Christmas that year. The collection was relatively small, just 18 hymns, but it was so popular it was reprinted 27 times through 1791. This hymn, in its original form, consisted of only two stanzas of eight lines, without music and without a title or heading. Wesley made minor revisions, for example, changing from our fears and sins relieve us to release us in the 1777 printing. With its opening line beckoning come, this hymn is best suited for the season of Advent. The hymn has a strong message of spiritual deliverance. The first stanza applies several descriptors to the Christ child. Strength, consolation, hope of all the earth, desire of every nation, and joy of every longing heart. The second stanza drives home its point by using repetition, listing three circumstances for which the Savior will be born, followed by the urgency of now. The hymn goes on to describe how this reign will be facilitated by the Holy Spirit, taking place in the heart and made possible only by Christ's merit, not our own. As we now know well about Charles Wesley, Scriptural allusions include the promised rest of Matthew 11:28, God is the strength of Israel, 1 Samuel 15:29, or Psalm 68:34, the prophetic hope and the strength of Joel 3:16, the desire of all nations anticipated in Haggai 2:7. The heart indwelling of the Spirit as in Ezekiel 11:19 and 36:26, and Romans 5:5 5, 5, or 2 Corinthians 1:22, and the complete sufficiency of the work of Christ in Ephesians 2:8 and Corinthians 12:9. Hymnologist Carl Daw summarized the hymn nicely. Despite the title of the collection in which this text was published, and despite the four appearances of Born Here, this is not so much a hymn about nativity as it is about incarnation. The details of the birth are never mentioned. No manger, no shepherds, no angels. Yet there is an awareness here that the larger mystery being celebrated leads to the sending of the Holy Spirit and comes full circle in Christ's reign and glory, when God's people will find freedom from fear and sin, when hope will be fulfilled, and when human hearts will be aligned with God's saving purposes.
Jesus, lover of my soul. This is the most famous of all Charles Wesley's 6,500 hymns. It is found in all our hymnals and has been translated into all the languages of the world. No one seems to know the circumstances around the creation of this hymn. We can dismiss as sentimental legends the telling of doves or hawks flying through his window and taking refuge from a storm. When written in 1739, he had not yet become an itinerant evangelist or been mobbed. Most likely, the text came spontaneously from the depth of his soul and bears the mark of the spiritual experiences that occurred during his early life. These would include the near sinking of his ship during an Atlantic storm when returning to England in the fall of 1736. In light of this narrative, written down in his journal for 1736, read again the first two stanzas of the hymn, Jesus, lover of my soul, and other refuge have I none. The other major impetus for this hymn, of course, was his own spiritual awakening in 1738, which proved to be a turning point in his career. It was also the moment that he was cured of a terrible fever, his bodily strength being almost miraculously restored. Now compare this story, further described in his journal, with stanza three of the hymn, Thou, O Christ, art all I want. From a self-distrustful and over-anxious clergyman with uncertain aim, he became a fiery evangelist veritable voice of God, swaying with his eloquence vast outdoor audiences all over England, Wales, and Ireland. Finally, his work as a prison chaplain was a further inspiration to this hymn. In the words, again, of Albert Bailey, this prison work and the souls Wesley helped save lent its subconscious press and imagery to the creation of this hymn. His emotional commitment to his evangelism climaxed during the week of July 12th to 19th, 1738, when 10 felons from Newgate Prison were executed. Again, his journal reveals the minute-by-minute -minute conversion experience he offered to each prisoner, gracefully received. Now recall the final stanza. Plenteous grace with thee is found. Thus, this hymn helps us to realize the great sincerity found in the hymn texts of Charles Wesley, in which all the language is biblical. It is also a reflection of lower-class 18th-century conditions, and as a result, the passionate temper of the great revival in the midst of such a societal upheaval and evolution.
for the commemoration of John and Charles Wesley. Lord God, you inspired John and Charles Wesley to thirst after true righteousness and endowed them with eloquence in speech and song that the hearts and voices of many might testify to the work of Christ. Grant us, we pray, the power of your spirit to kindle anew in hearts grown cold the ardent love of Jesus Christ, who is alive and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And would you join us in the prayer of parting? God, God of majesty, whom saints and angels delight to worship in heaven, be with all your people who employ art and music for your praise, that with joy we on earth may glimpse your beauty and bring us to the fulfillment of that hope of perfection which will be ours as we stand before your unveiled glory. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Turn our hearts to you, eternal God, and grant that, seeking always the one thing necessary and carrying out works of charity, we may be dedicated to your worship. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless us, protect us from evil, and bring us to everlasting life. Let us go in peace to love and to serve the Lord. In, in the, the name, name of Christ. Christ. Amen. Amen.